0: This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. This is a special episode of Danger Close because Danger Close listeners will be the first to hear the prologue to my next novel, Only the Dead, read by Ray Porter. Only the Dead hits shelves this spring and is available for pre-order now. Enjoy the prologue.
1: Only the dead have seen the end of war. George Santayana, commonly misattributed to Plato. I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, Oath taken by members of the United States Armed Forces, the Vice President, and every member of Congress. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic, is not included in the President's Oath of Office, as specified by Article 2, Section 1, Clause 8 of the Constitution of the United States. Prologue Newport, Rhode Island 1980. Walter Stowe deftly piloted the thirty-six-foot trawler through Vineyard Sound, past Nashawina Island, and into Rhode Island Sound. He kept Castle Hill Lighthouse to the boat's starboard side as he navigated a northeasterly course toward their destination. He had become quite adept at maneuvering small watercraft in dangerous waters, though the seas between Edgartown Yacht Club on Martha's Vineyard and Station 10, the New York Yacht Club's property in Newport, were not nearly as dangerous as the waters he had been navigating ten years earlier, inserting and extracting Navy SEALs in the Mekong Delta. The route ahead clear, Walt turned from the helm to look at his wife. Martha sat behind him on the flybridge, her tan legs outstretched on the cushioned, aft-facing bench seat her face upturned to catch the fading rays of the late summer sun. Trawler was a bit of a misnomer. It was a Grand Banks 36, and though it resembled the trawlers of Walt's youth, this vessel was built with comfort and touring in mind, not hauling in a catch in the hopes of making ends meet. A more than capable craft, bloody decks were foreign to her. This boat was built to impress the East Coast's prestigious yachting community. The boat was hers, or to be more precise, it belonged to her family, a family of means, a family with history. Martha's grandfather had made his money investing in commodities. He had then used that fortune to purchase commercial real estate in New York City. It was rumored that he had run a profitable bootlegging business during Prohibition. That mythology naturally led to whispers of mob connections in Manhattan and Chicago. Her family had even been accused of delivering the Windy City vote in a presidential election for another high-profile Massachusetts family two decades earlier, when Martha was still in middle school. She had never witnessed her father or grandfather dispel those rumors. She suspected that a connection to the mob, real or imagined, didn't hurt in certain business dealings. While blue blood ran strong through her stock, Martha had diluted the perceived nobility of the line when she married Walter. The Stowe's were seafarers, Walt and his brothers had grown up fishing and checking traps off the coast of Cape Cod. Most people associate lobsters with Maine, but as Walt and his brothers knew, wooden lath traps were first used in their home waters in 1810. The traps Walt would use over a century later operated in much the same fashion as their predecessors. A lobster would be lured through a funnel, unable to resist the temptation of the mackerel and herring bait, The smaller crustaceans could escape through vents, but the larger ones would remain imprisoned in their wood and metal cells until Walt and his brothers pulled them to the surface. Witchmere Harbor in Harwich Port was their base of operations, and in a fickle industry with innumerable variables, Walt learned that in some years the catch was not enough to feed a young family. He watched as his father took odd jobs around town to make ends meet, working as a handyman and bartender as finances and seasons dictated. The man never complained. From bull raking for little neck clams to chasing striped bass to roofing, shingling, and a bit of carpentry, the elder Stowe put food on the table and a roof over the heads of his wife and sons. All three stowboys believed their paths were preordained. The sea was calling. That was until they started hearing about a country called Vietnam. Because the United States never formally declared war on North Vietnam, Walt's older brother was one of the 2.2 million Americans conscripted for service in Southeast Asia under the peacetime draft established by the Selective Training and Service Act of 1940. The working-class Stowe family knew it was only a matter of time before Walt was drafted, so his father recommended his middle child volunteer in the Navy. Rather than rolling the dice with the army, the elder Stowe believed a ship off the coast would be a much safer way to ride out a tour in Vietnam. Neither Walt nor his father had ever heard of the Brown Water Navy. Within the year Walt found himself on a Mark II PBR in the Mekong Delta, learning the ropes from a weathered first class petty officer, the boat's captain. Walt and the captain were augmented by a gunner's mate to run and maintain the twin fifty caliber machine guns, and an engine man to keep the new Jacuzzi water jet propulsion system operational. With the fifties in the bow and a thirty caliber M nineteen nineteen AH mounted to the stern, Along with a hand-cranked Mark 18 40 by 46 mm grenade launcher, the patrol boat and crew of river rats operated throughout South Vietnam's extensive river systems, which cut through the country from the South China Sea all the way to Cambodia. With roads and rail lines still in rudimentary stages of development, it was the veins of rivers and canals that provided the lifeblood of Vietnam's economy via access to resources. Those who controlled the waterways controlled the country. It was upon returning from a patrol that he received a letter from his mother letting him know that his younger brother had been drafted by the country's first lottery. He wouldn't last three weeks in Vietnam. Walt's commanding officer summoned Walt to his hooch in April 1970 to inform him of his brother's death. That same officer would summon him back a week later with news that Stowe was going home. His older brother was also dead, one of 1,448 service members to be killed on their last day in country, and making the Stowe family one of 31 families to lose two brothers in the conflict. Walt had a mission growing up in a family of lobstermen, and he had a mission in the Navy. The deaths of his siblings changed the course of his life and gave it new purpose. He returned from Vietnam and made use of the GI Bill, going to the State University of New York while working odd jobs in the city and earning his degree in less than three years. Walt could smoke dope and protest, or he could make changes from the inside. He was headed into government. He thought his path to instigating change would be through the State Department believing he could work his way up the ranks and help prevent another war that he viewed as a waste of blood and treasure, needless and avoidable, a permanent scar on the nation. He soon learned that ascension to a position of influence would take longer than patience dictated and that coveted ambassadorships were, for the most part, reserved for campaign donors and for people with recognizable last names. They did not come from families who trolled and checked traps. They came from those who paid top dollar for the catch to be served at private dinner parties in second, third, and fourth homes from the Hamptons to Martha's Vineyard. He needed another avenue if he wanted to keep his government in check. He found it in politics. The State Department had opened that door, as it was at a State Department function, that he met Martha Sterling. Looking like she would rather have been anywhere else, her outward demeanor matched Walt's internal disposition. They hit it off immediately. All Martha's sisters had been married off to suitors approved of, and possibly arranged by, her father. Suitors from other prominent, connected East Coast families of means, Influence and generational wealth. Martha was the problem child. Brown University, a Peace Corps mission to India, and anti war protests across the nation formed the foundation of her rebellious tendencies. Men with what her parents and grandparents considered the right pedigree bored her to tears. Walt was the one. Plus, he was a lobsterman. Her parents would hate that. But rather than be disavowed, Walt was accepted into the family. Martha suspected it was because her father thought he might end up being useful. It couldn't hurt to have a politician in the family, especially if you funded his campaign. Favors Walt proposed under a tree she had climbed as a child on the Sterling's Martha's Vineyard estate, and they were married on the property the following spring. Walt knew less than a third of those in attendance, but he was well aware that he was marrying more than Martha. He was marrying into something bigger. Martha tilted her head back, admiring her husband at the wheel. They had been married for just over six years and had two children to show for it. As a congressman from Massachusetts' 12th district, elected to the house just two years prior. Walter Starr was on the rise. His background resonated with blue collar workers, and his new affiliation with one of America's wealthiest and most connected families immersed him in the world of the political elite. He had already made waves as a staffer for Representative Otis Pike of New York, who led the United States House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Better known as the Pike Committee, it was established to investigate overreach by certain agencies of the federal government to include the FBI, NSA, and the CIA. The Pike Committee was the House's answer to the Senate's Church Committee, a key difference being that while the findings of the committee chaired by Senator Frank Church were made public, the findings of the Pike Committee were suppressed for reasons of national security. It was as part of those investigations that Walt began to meet with someone. At first, Martha thought he might be having an affair. That would not have been unusual for a man in his position. Martha's father was a well-known philanderer. Both of her sisters' husbands had strayed, but her sisters had, of course, looked the other way, as had their mother, following Jackie Kennedy's, now Jackie O's, example. Secrets. Martha despised secrets. She came from a family of secrets and swore she would not continue the tradition with her own. They were partners. With Walt's reputation as a man of the people, along with his political instincts and her family's fortune, they were a team. She was not about to be relegated to the back seat as her mother and sisters had been. As the former Navy man guided the boat around Fort Adams and into Brenton Cove, she thought back to the night she had begun to unravel the mysteries of his clandestine world. They had been staying in her family's Upper East Side building when he abruptly announced that he needed to meet with a potential donor late one evening. He had been having more of those recently. Meetings at odd hours meant a mistress in her experience. She was disappointed, but not surprised. She hailed a cab seconds behind his. Follow that cab. Are you serious? Her look told her driver that she was. Okay, lady. Walt's cab headed west through Central Park via the 79th Street transverse and then took a right in the direction of the Upper West Side. Where are you going? A few blocks later, his cab pulled over. She watched her husband exit the yellow vehicle and run across the street, quickly ducking into another taxi. Thrusting a $20 bill at her driver, she asked him to make a U-turn. It's illegal, he said. She shoved another 20 in his face. He cranked the wheel to a chorus of blaring horns. Walt's new cab maneuvered through traffic toward the Hudson River, turning south onto State Route 9A. Fortunately for Martha, she was in the most common vehicle in New York. She was invisible. Who is she? Do I confront her? Him? Of course I do. Bastard. They continued south past Hell's Kitchen, Chelsea, and the Meatpacking District before making a U-turn on Clarkson Street and cutting right on Morton into Greenwich Village. Walt's cab then took a left on Bedford Street and came to a stop in front of a lime green building, sandwiched between two brownstones, marked only with the number 86 in the West Village. Keep driving, Martha ordered, turning in her seat as her husband exited his cab and stepped onto the curb. Pull over here, she said, whatever you say. She watched Walt approach the dark wooden door and disappear inside. Meter's running, lady. Keep it running. Stay. Go inside. Leave. Turn a blind eye. She glanced down at the gold Girard Perregaux watch on her wrist. Ten minutes. She snatched two more twenties from her purse, handed them to her cab driver, and pushed open the door. Martha walked to the nondescript structure and closed her eyes to steady herself in preparation of what she was certain she was about to witness. Then she reached for the handle. What greeted her was not row upon row of doors to apartments, nor a foyer, as she expected. Instead, she heard the hum of conversation, not between a man and a woman, but the low, steady drone of a crowd. She pushed the heavy red velvet curtain in front of her aside and stepped into a dark, smoke-filled room poorly illuminated by dim lights on the walls and ceiling. Two bartenders mixed drinks for patrons across a weathered wooden bar, and Martha noticed framed dust jackets adorning the walls of works from Fitzgerald, Hemingway, Salinger, Steinbeck, Cather, and Cummings. Tables lined the establishment with drinkers who looked to be regulars deep in conversation. Very few were women. One man with a stack of legal pads next to him seemed to be writing. What is this place? She took in the scene, her eyes shifting from the bar to the tables until they settled on the corner booth. Walt's back was to her, but she recognized his jacket. She locked eyes with the man sitting across from him. The stranger wore a dark wool coat, its collar turned up, obscuring the lower part of his face. He zeroed in on the newcomer and then looked to Walt, who turned around. An expression of surprise was quickly replaced by resignation, and he waved her over. Stale air, thick with the smells of tobacco, sweat, and the damp, musty odor of whiskey barrels, parted way as she crossed the room. Walt scooted to the side under a framed dust jacket of Theodore Dreiser's An American Tragedy. "'Martha!' he said as she slid into the booth. Welcome to Chumley's. Hello, darling, she said. Charming place. Old speakeasy? It's good to see your meeting is not with a woman ten years my junior. She took stock of the man across the table. He wasn't smiling. The eyes weren't so much cold as they were perceptive and alert, penetrating. She had not seen eyes like that before. I'm Martha Stowe, she said, more of a pronouncement, reaching across the table. And you are? The man's left hand was on the table attached to a coffee mug. His right was out of sight. A stainless steel Rolex was on his wrist. When you grew up the way she did, you noticed things like that. The Rolex was becoming popular with Hollywood stars like Newman, Redford, and McQueen, the dive watches were even starting to adorn the wrists of New York City's financial class. But unlike the ones she had seen worn by Wall Street bankers, this crystal was worn and scratched. Walt looked at his companion and raised an eyebrow. The man nodded. True name? Walt asked. The man's eyes had not left Martha's. He nodded again. Martha, this is Tom Reese. Mr. Reese, I'm Martha Stowe. It's a pleasure to meet you. What, pray tell, are you and my husband discussing this evening? Tom had hesitated, then reached his right hand across the table. Mrs. Stowe, he acknowledged, clearly less than pleased at the intrusion. Call me Martha, please. If you are working with my husband on what I think you are, you can use my first name. Martha, he said. May I call you Tom? You may. Are you married? Martha, Jesus, Walter said, shaking his head. Well, if you are meeting surreptitiously with someone who I can only assume is either a reporter or works for one of our government agencies, I'd like to know what he has to lose. He doesn't look like a reporter. She turned back to the man across the table his eyes took measure, evaluating, thoughtful. She caught a flicker of acceptance as he moved his left hand to his coat pocket and removed a pack of Marlboro Reds. He shook out a cigarette and placed the filtered end between his lips. He then tossed the pack on the table and pulled a worn silver Zippo lighter from his right pocket. As the flint wheel ignited the wick, she noted an insignia on its side a red shield highlighted in yellow with what looked like a skull wearing a green beret. She couldn't quite make out the letters at its base, but the last three appeared to be S.O.G. Well? Well? Tom asked back before taking a long drag on his cigarette. Am I married? Not yet. She thought she caught the hint of a smile, as if a fond memory had risen from his subconscious. I see. So you have nothing to lose. We all have something to lose. How right you are. I'll be direct. Anything you are doing, any trouble you may cause, doesn't just impact you. It impacts me. It impacts my children. It impacts my family. I just want us to be clear. Are we clear, Tom? We are. Good. Now what do I need to know? That had been five years ago. Tonight, Walt would give a speech at the New York Yacht Club's Newport Clubhouse. He was young, but there were already talks of his future as a presidential hopeful, so campaigning outside of Massachusetts was good business. The comparisons to Camelot were not unfounded. An attractive political couple, a war veteran, Who happened to have served on the modern equivalent of a PT boat and a family connected to bootlegging in the mob. If they played their cards right, there was the possibility of a run for the White House. The country missed Camelot. It was still two, possibly even four, election cycles away, but in politics, you had to play the long game. After the speech and an hour of shaking hands, She planned to retire to their room while Walt would excuse himself and relocate to the White Horse Tavern for a drink and a bite to eat. There he would meet with Tom Reese. Walt did not share everything with his wife, but he shared enough. He thought it would alleviate her worries. In fact, it did the opposite. The Church Committee's report and what had been leaked from the Pike Committee had exposed the dark underbelly of the intelligence community to the American public. She knew that it had also illuminated something more. Martha understood that she did not have the full picture of what Walt was doing in his meetings with the man she now knew worked for the CIA, the very agency at the center of the investigations. Her husband had emerged as a strong and ardent voice for reform on the campaign trail for the passage of FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. The threat was Communism, and those in power at the highest levels of the country's intelligence apparatus would stop at nothing to curtail its advance, to include encroaching on the rights and privacy of U.S. citizens, politicians, reporters, and Supreme Court justices. What else had Walt learned in the course of the house investigations? What was it that kept him awake? She had arisen in the middle of the night on multiple occasions to find him standing at the window, a bourbon in hand, staring into the night. Was it nightmares? The war? Work? What was it that scared him enough to go outside of official channels to meet with a renegade CIA officer? What was he doing with Tom Reese? She knew they had met in Vietnam when Tom was a SEAL and had reconnected in the course of events surrounding the Pike Committee. She assumed him to be a source, but Walt kept the specifics of their dealings close. There were some matters he was not allowed to discuss with her, or so went the line. She could tell he was keeping things from her for her own protection. He promised he would tell her one day soon, that he just needed a little more time, an explanation she accepted as much as she disliked it. Walt pulled back on the throttle and decreased speed, first to ten knots and then to five as they approached the long dock extending from the manicured grounds of the club. Martha stood and joined her husband at the helm. Want to docker? He asked. You know I do she smiled. With the children in the care of multiple nannies at her parents' estate on Martha's Vineyard, they were free, well, almost free. It was still work, but she knew it was in pursuit of the ideals she had shouted for in the anti-war rallies of the late 1960s. Rather than just be the recipient of the wealth her family had accumulated and live a life parading from one social event to the next, she would have real influence. They could prevent conflicts like the war in Vietnam from happening again. They could fight to ensure that her children, and one day her grandchildren, would not die in an ill-conceived war, as had Walt's brothers. Martha was confident behind the controls of the yacht and knew the waters in between the island and Newport the way most people know the roads of their hometowns. Slipping the boat into neutral, she coasted toward the berth while Walt descended to the starboard side deck, pushing rubber fenders over the side to prepare for docking. They were an hour early which would allow them time to freshen up before the evening's event. She then moved the throttle into reverse and guided the craft alongside the pier. Walt leapt from the boat to the dock, pulling the bow line taut and expertly lashing it to a cleat. He did the same with the stern line, examining his work to be sure the boat was secure before reboarding the vessel. Great job, he called up to his wife on the flybridge. I know, dear. Walt disappeared below deck to retrieve their overnight bags. Martha shut down the engines. Ready? Walt called up as he emerged from the trawler's interior. Give me a minute, she said, rummaging through a storage compartment in search of her purse. She heard the gate to the pier open and glanced up to see a man with a clipboard walking down the dock, the harbormaster coming to greet them. Hello, she heard her husband say. Mind if I pass you these bags? "Alan not working tonight? When Martha turned and looked back down at the dock, the harbormaster was no longer holding a clipboard. In his outstretched hand was a pistol with a long cylindrical attachment she knew as a silencer. Walt slowly raised his hands and shook his head. Don't, the assassin fired. Due to the downward angle, the round entered near the top of Walter's head. It cut its way through the frontal, parietal, and occipital lobes, removing a large portion of the back of his skull on the way out, coating the lower portions of the side bridge windows with gray brain matter and bone fragments. Martha heard her husband's lifeless body drop straight to the deck. Visions of her two young children overwhelmed her and locked her in place. Paralyzed and unable to react, she witnessed the assassin fire two additional suppressed rounds into her husband. As the business end of the weapon swung upward, she gazed from the black pistol to her executioner's dead eyes. Italian? Russian? Martha was a good fifteen feet above the assassin. The setting sun was to her back, He held the pistol at her head and then dropped it to her upper chest and pressed the trigger. It felt like she had been hit with a sledgehammer, her body contorting around the entrance wound. The kids, Walter, her parents. As her body twisted, a swell rocked the boat and her knees buckled, which caused her to stumble backward and to the side. She felt another bullet impact her left arm and then had the brief sensation of falling she collided with the safety rail that extended from the bulwark of the main deck before crashing into the waters of Brenton Cove. As Martha sank into the darkness, she found herself thinking of someone else a man she knew had experience with violence, a man her husband would have seen later that evening, a man with ties to the military and to the Central Intelligence Agency, a man named Thomas Reese.
0: We all know how finances can take a major hit during the holiday season. That's why you need to go to NavyFederal.org and check out everything that they have going on. I have been a member since 1996 and I could not be more pleased with how all of that has gone. Partner up with Navy federal credit union to pay down credit card debt. You could get into low APR on balance transfers with their platinum credit card. It's their lowest rate card and it's a great tool to pay down debt. Navy federal can even help get you started on your next home improvement project. They offer home equity line of credit with convenient access to funds when you need them at a variable rate. You can also get a fixed rate equity loan that has set monthly payments for large purchases, consolidating debt with a home equity loan could also streamline and lower your monthly payments. Learn more at NavyFederal.org where their members are the mission insured by NCUA equal housing lender membership required. Loans subject to approval, call 1-888-842-6328 for details about credit card costs and terms. H-E-L-O-C-A-P-R as low as 6.5% as of November 23rd, 2022. I want to thank my friends at Black Rifle Coffee for sponsoring the Danger Close podcast. I've been a huge fan for the longest time. Drink Black Rifle Coffee every day. And if you keep your eyes peeled, you will notice that perhaps Chris Pratt is wearing a Black Rifle Coffee t-shirt, not unsimilar to this one, in the Amazon series adaptation of the Terminal List. Now, you can go to blackriflecoffee.com slash Danger Close and use code DANGERCLOSE20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. Black rifle coffee, America's coffee. Keep crushing. Thank you so much to six hour for jumping right on board out of the gate to make this podcast possible. Obviously I am a huge SIG fan having carried the P two, two six on every deployment downrange in the seal teams. Uh, but SIG was a supporter. They were friends well before uh, I was a New York Times bestselling author, uh, well before I even had an Instagram account or any social media presence whatsoever. So thank you guys all so much. Uh, Ron, Tom, Jason, everybody at SIG who gets up every day and continues to crush it and lead The way SIG is always adapting, they're always at the forefront. Whether it is firearms for citizens, whether it's firearms for our military, ammo, suppressors, optics, training, fire control units, they are doing it all and they are always pushing, pushing that envelope and trying to do it better each and every day through. Innovation and adaptation, they crush. So thank you so much for that friendship and support. Uh, it will never be forgotten. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. Only the Dead hits shelves this spring and is available for pre-order now. Go to officialjackcar.com, click on Only the Dead, and check it out. You can follow me on the social channels at Jack Carr, USA. OfficialJackR.com is the website. You can sign up for the newsletter there. And if you enjoyed this, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, take care out there. Stay safe, be strong, keep fighting.